Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of our 175 locations, online, or on our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. I recently read a Washington Post article that described a, I'll say, quote, a surge of hopeful advances for ovarian cancer. So while this cancer continues to present numerous challenges to both patients and the medical teams caring for them, and we will talk about those. Remarkable progress has been made in the last few years, improving treatment options and survival for women. Joining us today to get up to speed on the latest information is our guest, Dr. Nita Lee. Dr. Lee is a board-certified gynecologic oncologist and gynecologic surgeon who specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of women with ovarian, uterine, cervical, and gynecologic cancers. She's Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Dr. Lee's research interests include cancer survivorship and clinical trials, focusing on new therapies for ovarian, uterine, and cervical cancers. Dr. Lee, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So before we dive into the conversation, we have a lot to cover uh, today. I'd just like to, to get your quick take on what it has been like treating ovarian cancer during an exciting period of change with new treatments becoming available and a better um, understanding of the disease that is emerging, uh, and in particular, thanks to both genetic and biomarker testing. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, I've been in practice for some time now and really seeing the the depth and breadth of like what we can do for our patients in terms of really personalizing additional things to sort of the backbone of chemotherapy that we have has been probably the most exciting thing. I think that we know a lot more about the genetics of sort of, you know, oftentimes people think of genetics and they think of, oh, is this a genetic condition that is hereditary? And people often remember BRCA mutations, for example. Mm -hmm. But Really, this is also about tumor genetics. So even if you're not somebody who has a hereditary cancer linkage, there are more things that we're learning about the tumor genetics and mutations that may help guide us a little bit better in terms of therapies. But I think the whole spectrum is is pretty exciting. And there's, but there also means that there's a lot of nuance to it. And so working with your individual doctor or patients working with their individual GYN oncologist is really important to kind of really get a better sense of what's open. If that that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to break some of that down because I know we're, you know, there's some complicated topics here about, you know, your genetics, yeah. what you've inherited as a human, and then the genetics of your cancer. And we're going to get into that um, in a little bit. But let's let's take another step back for our benefit, um, maybe back to the sixth grade science class, or maybe it was health ed, I'm not sure. But uh, really grounding our listeners in just, let's start with a couple basics. Let's start with the sure. um, ovaries. What are they? Where are they? And what role do those ovaries play in our bodies? 
Sure, sure. So the ovaries are sort of small, like almost like walnut-sized organs. These are obviously the source of like where women's like fertility lies, like the normal function during reproductive age after you start your periods, for example, is that you ovulate monthly. There's an egg that's released that could be fertilized. And so the ovaries are the source of um, where the um, eggs that could be futurally fertilized live. They're also the source of hormones that are, um, that they're sort of signals that come from the brain that are connected to your ovaries actually making um, estrogen, progesterone, other type of, of steroid hormones, which can kind of during before menopause kind of regulate your cycle. So there's like different surges of like estrogen and progesterone that kind of make somebody have a monthly cycle. After menopause, mm-hmm. there's a little bit less... M- metabolically active and so postmenopausal ovaries generally don't make estrogen and that's one of the things that we sometimes test for for trying to figure out if somebody went to menopause but their structure is is related to that and then let's and keep the going same. um yeah yeah and let's yeah, keep going say with the, the biology is- here yeah. So we often think of ovarian cancer because we often think that like the things that can look like ovarian cancer and actually be treated exactly the same are also cancers that arise in the fallopian tubes and the peritoneum. So the fallopian tubes are really just the uh, connected to the uterus. They're sort of these little like tube-like structures that kind of sit on top of the ovary and then capture an ovary, uh, sorry, a follicle, and then bring that follicle into the uterus so that fertilization can occur. But they're all also thought to be the site of where cells of origin can transform into cancer. So you can have a, a fallopian tube cancer. It can arise in the fallopian tube or in the ovary or spread to the ovary from the fallopian tube. And the peritoneum just refers to kind of the lining or the coating that surrounds all of our internal organs, but they, it can also be prone to the same type of cells um, and the same types of cancers. Yes. And so... Um so obviously ovarian cancer, c- cancer of the ovaries, we're going to dive in here, Dr. Lee. One of the challenges we know of ovarian cancer is that there's still no screening test uh, for ovarian cancer, something um, we know researchers are continue to work on. But we're going to talk a little bit later about how ovarian cancer is diagnosed. But for women who have, for example, no family history uh, of ovarian cancer and with no um, screening test available like we have for some other cancers, what are some of the symptoms that a woman might um, experience that they should bring to their doctor? attention. I think this is very important because I think early detection due to patients becoming their, sort of being their own advocates and like really listening to changes in their bodies and really being, you know, pretty, you know, advocating for themselves. Some of these symptoms are things such as really irregular bleeding, bloating, um, a feeling of fullness. Um, Actually, sometimes it can be like weight gain where you're sort of, you know, not expecting to gain weight, but your, you know, pants aren't fitting that tight because sometimes people can develop fluid that's related to cancer cancer, changes in your bladder function or bowel function. Now, sometimes these changes happen over time after menopause regardless, so we can't assume that every symptom is related. But if you have a new symptom that's new or different than your norm, right? So it can't be just like, oh, every time I eat this, I get bloated, like for years. That's not necessarily a symptom, for example. But if it's a new symptom that's persistent, you've had it many times during the week and it lasts for more than a week or two, then those kinds of persistent new changes are things that you should bring in, you know, to your, um, to your physician's uh, attention, essentially. And quite honestly, yeah. the recommendation is to have a, 
of pelvic exam. So seeing a gynecologist is really important as a baseline. And then also potentially even having an ultrasound if you are having symptoms. Got it. Got it. And it is challenging, Dr. Lee, because those are mm-hmm. things that women experience all the time. Yes, you know, exactly. So, you know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. the toughest thing think, that we do because, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do think that that does, you know, that does become a challenge for um, uh, for women. Oh, I'm used to that. You know, those are symptoms I have, or when I get my period, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, and they, you know, maybe kind of ignore them um, when they should. And I think that annual exam is really important information for women to to know, but not to wait for the annual exam. Obviously, if you're having some, uh, correct, you know, some exactly. issues. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I know another challenge um, with no early detection or, or obvious symptoms, because they are in some ways somewat vague, is that that oftentimes. Unfortunately, ovarian cancer is diagnosed when the cancer has advanced. Um, you know, in in preparing for our conversation today, I read uh, about a Facebook Facebook group for women living with ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. in which member members shared that their symptoms were dismissed or associated yeah. with menopause or irritable bowel syndrome. You know, women don't speak up um, about this. Here's a quote from that. It says, another common story is that women chalk up persistent stomach bloating symptoms to gluten or lactose sensitivities, right, things that we talk about now. They, you know, they try to treat with pro- probiotics or other diets. Um, so, you know, just, just sort of emphasize, you know, what women should be looking for, Dr. Lee. No, I agree. I mean, I think a lot of it is true because these symptoms that I was describing are so generic in some ways that we've all gone through them or have, you know, but I think it's really trying to see, is this something that's new or different? And quite honestly, if it feels new and different to you, really making sure you're advocating for not just sort of like a GI workup or not just sort of like one blood test or something like that, but really saying like, okay, have I had a good pelvic, have I had my gynae exam? Like how long, how many years has it been since I've had my gynae exam? And then if something still doesn't feel right, saying like, I really think I need an ultrasound is very reasonable. Now, of course, this is also, you have to kind of like figure out, like it's always hard because there's some patients who may be very nervous about this and may feel like they're, they think that these symptoms are happening, but it's harder for them to tell. But again, I think if, if there's a regular bleeding, pelvic pain, changes such as like pain with intercourse that wasn't there a few months before, something different, I think it's really important to kind of really pursue that to see whether or not anything is, is coming of it and to almost have this, even though it's a rarer cancer, though, you know, it's like only, you know, in the, in the general population, it's, it's one to 2% of, of, of women versus like breast cancer, which is more common. But I think it's really that forcefulness of saying like, don't be afraid to say something still does not feel right to push for that ruling mm-hmm. that out. Right. So you could mm-hmm. even say, look, I know this may be different, but I would really like to reassure myself because I've read that, you know, some of these symptoms could be early signs, like what could I do to reassure myself? And that may be a way to kind of, you know, talk to your doctor. That's right. You got to speak up for yourself. Dr. Lee, we've got a couple yeah. minutes until our, our first break here, but let me ask you, so you have the symptoms, you go in, maybe you get to the ultrasound. Let, let's talk a little bit about how ovarian cancer is um, actually diagnosed. What can a patient expect? 
Sure, sure. So, you know, sometimes this is diagnosed and started, the diagnosis is started before I, as a GYN oncologist, will see the person. So oftentimes patients will have had an ultrasound that shows something concerning, such as fluid or a large mass on their ovaries, and concomitantly then they will get something like a blood test, a tumor marker, which is called a CA125. That blood test is not good for screening if you're not having any symptoms and you're just going about your day, but if you do have a mass, that can sometimes help us triage what to do next. So you can definitely expect when you go in to see a gynecologist or a GYN oncologist and there's a concern about this, another pelvic exam, often a rectal and vaginal exam, really helps us decide is this mass like mobile, is it freely or is it fixed. You can also sort of expect to, you know, potentially get a CAT scan if we're really worried. So that's another radiologic procedure where you get an IV inserted. Sometimes you drink some contrast. And that gives us a bigger, clearer picture of sort of the whole potentially abdomen and pelvis area. So some of those are some of the expectations of like what a, a, an initial visit would look like when you're in the process of possibly getting diagnosed with a cancer. Got it. Got it. Got it. And Dr. Lee, um, uh, just just talk for a minute about um, women who have a history of cancer especially ovarian cancer in the family, should they be doing something more than the annual GYN exam? You know, just talk for a minute about that. For sure. As a basic, they should be having an annual GYN exam, but really trying to figure out what is that family history, like how many family members, how old was the person, is that person still living and with us? Have they had any genetic testing done? So anybody who has ovarian cancer at any age should have cancer genetic testing done. Sometimes people have a loved one who had the cancer but is no longer with us. And so then sometimes I'll tell those patients, well, you know, if you don't have a strong family history, it may be still important to see a cancer geneticist to kind of look at that family Mm -hmm. tree and see should you get genetic testing done. And in some patients, depending on that family tree, we do either find out that there is a genetic condition and then we actually do do CA125 and ultrasound for some patients. Or we don't have a genetic reason, but we still kind of think of like what would be a safe way to do surveillance without overdoing it. Great, great, terrific, good advice. Uh, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, We're talking about ovarian cancer today. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Brought to you by AstraZeneca, the company behind your cancer, an effort to bring together the community that has worked to bring us miles closer to a world without cancer. Learn more at yourcancer.org. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. 
the Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by GlaxoSmithKline. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, and we are focusing on the latest advancements in ovarian cancer. With us is gynecologic oncologist and surgeon, Dr. Nita Lee of the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. She specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of women with ovarian, uterine, cervical, and gynecologic uh, cancers. Um, Dr. Lee, one of the things that we at the cancer support community advise all newly diagnosed people to do is to know as much about their exact cancer as possible, including the cell type, the grade, the stage. Um, Can you clarify for us, we talked a little bit before the break about how the disease would be diagnosed, but can you talk to us about what stage and grade mean and what they can tell us about ovarian cancer? Oh, for sure. I think this is a really important point because I think a lot of people come and all of those things can be so confusing. So stage refers to at the time of your diagnosis, where is this cancer located? So what that tells us is it's a way for us to communicate amongst providers, amongst like looking at things historically to best decide on like treatments and things like that. So it kind of tells us like it helps me communicate. If I say this person was a stage, you know, One, cancer, my colleague who is treating her around the world would understand what that means, if that makes sense. Stage, again, really refers to where is it located. With ovarian cancer, this is generally something that at some point we find out through a combination of your CAT scan and a surgery, you know, to say, okay, where is this on the CAT scan? Where do we see areas of tumor? Um, Grade is actually very specific for once somebody has had either a biopsy or a surgery, it refers to kind of like how the cells look like under the microscope, essentially. So ovarian cancer, there are a couple of different cell types, and some of them most frequently for ovarian cancer tend to be the more typical cancer, which is epithelial ovarian cancer, tend to be high-grade tumors. There are low-grade tumors that are also similar epithelial. Those are less common, and there are also ovarian cancers that kind of are a little bit different, and they're kind of some of the more rare cell types, and that grade of those can also differ as well. So, you know, 
in general, most women with ovarian cancer generally have an epithelial ovarian cancer, and those tend to be high grade. But I think it's important that anybody who's going through treatment for it knows which one they have and what does, you know, generally higher grade tumors um, tend to be a little bit more, grow faster and tend to be a little bit more aggressive in general. But those are very generalities because they also tend to respond better to traditional chemotherapy. So it's kind of, you have to think about it both ways. Terrific. Terrific background. Now, let, let's, I want to get into treatment a little bit. We talked about the challenges relating to diagnosing ovarian cancer, um, but before discussing treatment options, I just want to take a look quickly at some of the advances that have taken place. A lot of the advancements have to do with precision medicine. Can you explain to our mm-hmm. listeners, Dr. Lee, what is precision medicine? Yeah, you know, this is such a, I'm so glad you asked that because I think sometimes I've given talks or like, you know, panel discussions and I feel like I almost have to Google that myself to be like, what are we calling precision medicine these days in terms of that? And in general, it's this idea of approaching any disease, whether it's disease like a treatment for ovarian cancer that takes into account like the individual person. So this may, on some ways we're thinking about, does it take into account the individual's genetics, right? But So a lot of times people are talking about how we use molecular tests and cancer genetics to inform which treatments we should give. But you could bring that even further and say, well, you know, precision medicine or personalized medicine should also kind of like fit like how their lifestyle is, what their tolerance is. So I think in Mm -hmm. general, precision medicine refers to the genetics and the new molecular testing. But I think that theme of it in general is that we always try to personalize the treatment to fit the person, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. I, lo- I love that expanded definition. Um, absolutely. And so, let, so let's try to break this down a little bit. Um, I know <laughs> this is complicated uh, for the average bear, but um, I want to talk about genetic testing. I know we touched on that a little mm-hmm. before the break, and then biomarker testing. So let's start with mm-hmm. genetic testing, those inherited, inherited genes, inherited cancers. Sure, sure, yeah. So, you know, before we knew as much as we know now, sometimes genetic testing um, was a situation where if you had breast, young breast, multiple family members with breast or ovarian cancer, we would test for um, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndromes, the most um, well-known of which is the BRCA or BRCA1 and 2 gene family. And that basically predisposes women to develop early onset of breast or ovarian cancer and all at like different percentages and different things like that, that are, you know, the details are not as important, you know, for this talk. But I think then we know that there are other genes that can be passed on. And so now we think of it as a panel testing. So now there's like a hereditary panel that our geneticists, and there's a couple of different companies that have these different panels, will test and they can test like 15 panel genes or they can test 20 panel genes. Depending on what your family history is, they are designed to try to find anything that could um be a a reason or a responsible reason that could predispose somebody to developing this with an effort to see if we could kind of warn other family members, but then also for the individual person, some of those genetic conditions will actually change the what medical treatment we give. And so to, let's just stop there for a minute. So if you, if you have some history of cancer in your family, history of, of, of certain breast cancers, of ovarian cancer, you know, mm-hmm. at what point should you say to the doctor, hey, I think I, I don't have any symptoms, but I think I should be tested for this gene maybe? 
You know, I think that's a little bit trickier. It's always most important to test the person or the individual that may have had the cancer. So, for example, if there's a mother who, you know, my a, a daughter comes in to see us and says, look, like, my mom had ovarian cancer, um, you know, two years ago. Like, I want to get tested. And I'll tell her, you know, it's actually much more important for your mom to get tested. And since she's doing well, like, let's bring her in. Let's have her see the cancer geneticist and get tested. Because if she's negative, then the daughter's or son's risk of inheriting the breast cancer gene from her is is zero, essentially, and they don't all have to get tested. Does that make sense? But if the mother is not available because she passed away, unfortunately, or this cancer had occurred many, many years ago and she's, you know, passed away from something else, then we do have to make the active decision like, hey, is your family tree, you know, worrisome enough that you should get tested? And I usually let our cancer geneticist and our cancer genetics experts kind of help me decide. There are actually like algorithms and sort of like these little like, you know, things that you can put into an app to say, hey, based on your family history, this is what we think your percentage is. Yes, we think that it's warranted. No, we really don't think it's warranted because you had one like great aunt that maybe had, you know, so there's a lot of different ways to get at whether or not to do it and not to jump to it. So let's get into that. But I will say, I'm sorry, I apologize. One other other thing for that is that if you do have a really strong family history, and especially in, for example, like Ashkenazi Jewish women, where the the population may have a higher risk of having BRCA mutations, then it may be that more women get tested. But I I don't want to be like, you know, choosing on one one population per se, but I think that's something that the geneticist can help us with based on our best knowledge right at this point. Yeah. Um, so let's get into this, um, this question around biomarker testing. I know this can be mm-hmm. called um, genomic testing, um, genomic sequencing, next generation mm-hmm. sequencing, but let's use the, we'll just There's use so the term many different things, biomarker yes. t- I know. So let's, let's use yeah. the term biomarker testing. Um, tell me about what that is and what patients need to know about that. Yeah, so that's actually testing that's done. If you're thinking about the tumor genomics, like that type of genomic testing, also called next-gen sequencing, which means like you're basically sequencing the genome of your tumor. So what we're trying to say is that when you get a blood test, we're trying to see if there's a hereditary condition that's in the cells that are like you inherited, right? In the tumor itself, sometimes the tumor can have all these different mutations, and we can learn about those mutations and see if any of those mutations are actually sort of fit with a treatment that we have. And so those types of biomarker testing or tumor testing is the genomics and the genetics of the actual tumor to see what are the differences and like what are kinds of these like different signals that we may actually have a treatment for. Now, I will say that even though things have expanded tremendously, the amount of things that we can report and say, oh, you have this like rare mutation, but it doesn't really mean anything because there's no treatment for it. Does that make sense? There's still a disconnect. So like not everybody who gets tumor genomic testing is going to have like a perfect match of what to treat with, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got about two minutes until our next break. I know we're going quickly here. So mm-hmm. um, uh, Dr. Lee, so just walk us through the standard treatments for ovarian cancer. Is, sure. it, is it always surgery first? You know, surgery, chemo, we talked about yeah. targeted therapy. I think what I tell my patients is that for ovarian cancer, the majority of women who get diagnosed with ovarian cancer will be stage three, which means it's in the peritoneal cavity or beyond stage four. 
there's always a grouping of surgery and chemotherapy. Now, the order of that and the sequence of that is what we have to personalize for the patient. In general, there's one surgery that we try to do that is a good surgery. Now, that may become comes at the beginning of their treatment, or it could come in the form of neoadjuvant chemotherapy before surgery, do chemotherapy three or four times, and then we do one really good surgery, and then we follow that up with chemotherapy. That's the kind of baseline backbone standard, and then we can kind of talk about nuances. Who needs maintenance therapy? Who needs all these other regimens added? Who would potentially consider intraperitoneal or heated intraperitoneal? So those are all kind of nuances that we add to that backbone, if that helps. Great. Terrific. No, that's great. Um, that's great background. We, uh, we, have a lot, we have a lot more to cover um, uh, in the conversation, but we're, we're going to take a quick break. Um, we're talking with Dr. Lee about uh, ovarian cancer. We're talking about uh, diagnosis. We're talking about treatment, different kinds of t- testing, genetic testing, uh, uh, biomarker testing. We're uh, looking at some of the different treatment options. We have a lot more uh, to cover with, uh, with Dr. Lee. We want to talk about, um, uh, about research. We want to get a little bit into clinical trials. I know there are a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions um, uh, about clinical trials, so we want to take a little bit of time to cover clinical trials and also talk about the future and the progress that we're making. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break here. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Brought to you by AstraZeneca, the company behind your cancer, an effort to bring together the community that has worked to bring us miles closer to a world without cancer. Learn more at yourcancer.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. Today's episode is brought to you in part by EMD Serona. We're lucky to be joined today by gynecologic oncologist and surgeon, Dr. Nita Lee, for an in-depth look at what's new in ovarian cancer. Dr. Lee's research interests include cancer survivorship and clinical trials, focusing on new therapies for ovarian, uterine, and cervical uh, cancers. Dr. Lee, we know that a large majority of cancer patients in general across all cancers are seen in a community hospital setting, um, you know, not necessarily at a large academic or, or medical center, and sometimes a, a specific trained gynecological oncologist may not be um, available. So just talk to us specifically about what a gynecological oncologist is. Should a patient seek that specialist out for their treatment? Should they make the effort to go for a second opinion, go to maybe a larger center? Can you just talk about that for a moment, please? Yeah. No, I'd love to. I mean, I do think, so GYN oncologist, so I'm a GYN oncologist. That means that I trained specifically in GYN cancer. So I did a residency. We do residency for four years in general obstetrics and gynecology where each year or at least every other year or so we all do rotations through our, um, with our GYN oncologist. And then those of us who are really dedicated to wanting to do that type of more advanced surgery, more um, complex surgery, as well as manage chemotherapy for for women, then we train for an additional three or four years under the under a training program that only focuses on cancer and GYN oncology. I love what I do, and I love GYN oncology because it's one of the you know the only specialties that we're able to really be so holistic about our care for patients in terms of we see patients when they're diagnosed, we perform their surgery, we help coordinate any chemotherapy, we deliver the chemotherapy, we see patients for maintenance, and then in patients who we have to deal with either recurrences or kind of like longer term issues of dealing about, you know, dealing about like palliation of symptoms. We kind of cover the, the, the range in that. Specifically, though, for surgery and for diagnosis, we really do think that it's important to have a GYN oncologist as part of the team. You're right. We're not everywhere, even though I'd like for us to be. But I do think that, that GYN oncologists are available enough, especially even in, in, you know, even if you're like whole care may not be by the GYN oncologist, part of their, mm-hmm. you, they can be part of your team. So I have a lot of patients who I see, but they live like two or three hours away. I'm not going to have them if, unless they're participating in a clinical trial and they want to come and do their chemotherapy with me, but I work very closely with their medical oncologist and then their medical mm-hmm. oncologist and I work together to get the same thing accomplished. But we do know that women really do better on that, on putting by that. Yeah, so really putting your heads together on that treatment plan is the yes, key. Yes, because it's not a cancer that many medical oncologists have also treated, and I think we just have I a see. different perspective because all of our patients start, most of them start with advanced stage disease, and we're not necessarily as intimidated by that in some ways, and we want to kind of you know provide the best sort of level of care for those women, even if it's not going to be directly through our practice. Got it. Got it. Um, Dr. Lee, you and the University of Chicago are involved in a fascinating education program called the Survivors Teaching Students Program. It's run by the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, a group that we know well, and it connects ovarian cancer patients with medical students at the University of Chicago. Can you tell us about that program and its goals? Yeah, no, I'm thrilled with the program. So this is a long-standing program that OCRA has had, and I was lucky enough to connect with an ovarian cancer survivor in the Chicagoland area who really wanted to see this 
develop again, essentially. And so this is a way that survivors of ovarian cancer can really be trained and supported to kind of share their story to any type of medical trainees. So in our program, it's specifically to medical students, but we've had them train, like we've had them meet with lab members or like an ovarian cancer lab, for example, so they learn about it. They've done things at nursing schools or PA schools, so they work all over the country. We, um, it's really important because these are women who dedicate their time and share these like really intimate and personal experiences, but really, you know, when a student is hearing that firsthand, you'll never forget that experience of having somebody tell you what their experience was being diagnosed. You'll remember the symptoms because this person is in front of you saying like, these were my symptoms and no one listened to me, example, or these were my symptoms and my doctor was great and listened to me and ordered XYZ. I think it's just those types of testimonials are very powerful for students and for any of us. And so this, our program, my Part of it was fairly, you know, was just kind of, you know, saying like, hey, this is important. We're going to do it. We're going to make it mandatory and we're going to, you know, push forward. But this program is offered around the country. I think we just, you know, know it's a great thing. That's terrific. I'm sure it's going to, you know, really change care and really raise the consciousness of these uh, physicians and really bring us to a true place of patient-centered care, which I think is terrific. Yeah, I I think so. I really... I think you hit the nail on the head. It's really an example of putting the patients right there so everyone sees what their experience is, which I think is so important. Terrific. Um, I just want to dive a little deeper, Dr. Lee, for those who may just be um, joining us for our own edification about some of these new um, target ther- targeted therapies, sure. um, immunotherapies. Just talk to us about, you know, some of the advances that you're seeing and, you know, t- just talk us through some of these treatment approaches. Um, what can the patient experience? You know, what kind of side effects are we looking at? Are these IVs or these pills? You know, what are we talking about with these, you know, new and, and evolving therapies? Sure, sure. I would think of like three categories specifically for ovarian cancer um, in terms of of what we use. So one of the biggest um, things that has come about is really testing in in a category of drugs called PARP inhibitors. And so those are actually oral tablets that um, have been studied initially in BRCA mutation patients and been now really approved for a whole range of patients, which are tablets that are basically, um, you know, they inhibit a certain enzyme that is responsible for um, DNA repair, essentially. And so I think the important thing about the PARPs, for example, is that these are now drugs that could be layered on to the backbone of the chemotherapy that we discussed before and then continued after that initial chemotherapy is completed and have shown to have improvement in overall survival in certain populations of patients and perhaps even in improvements of like delaying any other, you know, progression of disease. So that's like a really important one. And I think it's very hard to kind of, you know, summarize that too much because I think every person has to like talk to their doctor about is a PARP inhibitor right for me, yes or no, based on my genetics, based on my tumor genetics or genomics, as we were talking about, or based on like my, where my disease status is, like what does my scan look like? What are my options? The other thing, you know, I think you mentioned here was immunotherapy. The immunotherapy has been less completely adopted in the frontline therapy for ovarian cancer, but there are many trials that are looking at this right now. And again, a lot of times it's adding on to that backbone. If we add immunotherapy to the backbone that we know works well, can we make this response even better? 
immunotherapy is um, usually, um, right now, usually an IV form of drugs that are delivered to kind of um, help the body's, you know, natural defenses essentially be adjusted to um, help target the cancer cells. And so it's a little bit of a long-winded way of saying it, but I think it's important to kind of like um, think of it in terms of like the global category that it's in. So there's a lot of other drugs. Mm -hmm. There's some other biologic agents as well. So a lot of these, again, are layered on for patients who have a primary treatment, and then for patients who are experiencing recurrences, that's how we also try to think about where would this be important Got it. Got it. Um, I know sometimes, Dr. Lee, with these new and advanced treatments and new-to-market treatments, there can also be a big uh, price tag. Are we seeing that these mm-hmm, are generally mm-hmm. being covered by insurance or patients having big co-pays or, you know, we, we, we talk about toxicity from cancer treatment, but I know nowadays we also oh, like, talk about financial uh, toxicity and, and the financial I think impact this on is- patients. So important. I think it's very important. So these new drugs are really expensive. And so we do, some of them are very specifically authorized through insurance companies if patients meet certain criteria. For example, the FDA approval for this XYZ, you know, so certain drugs are approved as long as certain genetic testing is done or tumor testing is done. And sometimes they're not approved if those genetic tests aren't because it won't make sense. They won't be as effective. But, and they're covered, but I think the copay issue is huge huge. I think the other major issue is that if any of these are oral drugs, this can often be a problem because some patients will have IV drug coverage, but not great prescription coverage. Mm-hmm. So even though it's a chemotherapy, it kind of gets falls in this loophole. So we spend a lot of time in our practice and our nurses and um, some of our um, physician assistants and our, and our physicians themselves, like making a lot of phone calls, like trying to figure out what, what's, you know, what the, yeah. what the nitty gritty is for what the patient's going to do. And a lot of companies do have really good programs for patients as well that we really rely upon. Yes, that's terrific. Pharmaceutical, you know, Um, yeah. We uh, only have a couple quick minutes till the break. I want to. I want you to set the table for us on clinical trials. Let's just start sure. with the basics. Um, what is a clinical trial? And the, and the number one question I hear from patients is, "I don't want to do a trial. I don't want to get a placebo." So let's debunk that, yes. Doctor Lee. Yes, yes, yes. So I think the important part about clinical trials is to understand that all clinical trials, like nothing's going to be. You know, it's very rare for there to be like a placebo because I often hear that too. Like, well, I don't really want to be a guinea pig about this, and so we're like, not. That's not really. The purpose of clinical trials, somebody is eligible for clinical trials, um, you know, if they're appropriate. Um, I think that, like, the main thing is to understand is that there's different phases of clinical trials. So, you know... uh, it depends on the cancer type you have. It depends on the, you know, it's an initial treatment versus a recurrent disease. Sometimes trials depend on, like, the, t- the number of other times you've had other treatments. And so for ovarian cancer, m- many women will experience multiple episodes of potential cancer and recurrence, and they're sometimes on and off therapy. You know, and so sometimes we have patients who've like, I've already had three different regimens. Now, which trial am I eligible for? So I don't know if, if we want to spend some time just to go through that, but a phase, you know, phase one trial are kind of like the newest drugs, and we're really trying to find the best dose with the fewest side effects. But the goal of that trial isn't always, we don't know for sure if that's going to be, you know, the winner ticket, right? But we know that there's a right. good biological basis for it. A phase two and yeah. phase three trial further assesses safety and efficacy or like how well does it work beyond standard. And so I think it's, there's yeah. a range, but I think clinical trials are such an important part of offering new medicines to patients. 
Great. Terrific, uh, terrific background. We're going to take a quick break here. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're, we're talking about ovarian cancer today. We have more to cover. We're going to dig in a little bit more uh, on clinical trials. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Brought to you by AstraZeneca, the company behind your cancer, an effort to bring together the community that has worked to bring us miles closer to a world without cancer. Learn more at yourcancer.org. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals. We've been talking today about ovarian cancer with Dr. Nita Lee from the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Uh, I can't believe we're coming to the end of our conversation. It goes by too quickly, but there's still so much I want to ask you. But um, I'm going to force myself to, to stay focused on uh, the, 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 the clinical trials topic uh, for the moment. It's so important, I think, for patients to understand and consider, and there are a lot of myths and misconceptions around mm-hmm. trials. So let's talk, Dr. Lee. When, when should a patient begin to discuss the possibility? ability of um, participating in a clinical trial with their medical team. And I think that also, you know, assumes that um, that, that it's the patient's responsibility, you know, to bring it up. But I guess if the doctor yeah. doesn't bring it up, then the patient really should, should force that conversation, I, right? I, I think they should. I mean, I think it's very valid. I mean, I think one of the really benefits of like even seeing somebody in GYN oncology as like either a second opinion or like as part of your team is that we're often really aware of what clinical trials are available at 
different phases of somebody's cancer care. So we actually sometimes will introduce the idea of clinical trials in the initial diagnosis because we have several trials that are sort of for upfront treatment in terms of like when you're newly diagnosed. And then we also have trials that are potentially available for patients who have recurrences of their cancer. So there's really not like a wrong time. And I think the way I think of it is that each phase of whatever that person's cancer care is, like are they newly diagnosed? Are we facing a recurrence? Are we facing sort of you're on a therapy and it may not be working well? At each phase, like I think to myself, like is there something good biologically that would make sense for the patient that would help this patient at this for, you know, state and time are there and then always counter that with like, well, what are the other standard of care options? And so it's not that a trial is always like all or nothing. It's really like looking at that. And I don't want to say menu because it's not like I want a patient to be forced to pick all, make all of those decisions, but it's for all of us together. And I am a strong believer in sort of a shared decision-making model for this is to say, okay, here are all of our treatment options. Like here's some standard treatments. Here are some other treatments. Here are the clinical trials. Like what are the pros and cons of all of those things? And so trials, I think, is consistently needs to be in that because we, we don't, I think it's really beneficial to certain patients, especially if there's a good biological reason behind them. Right. So really talk about it as a potential treatment option, just like other potential treatment options. Yeah, exactly. Because it will actually open up a whole new window. And patients who ask me to to talk about it, it's it's good. It pushes the doctor to like be better at what we're supposed to do, which is to give you all the options. So sometimes even if we don't remember, like it's great when patients say, oh yeah, but what about clinical trials? And I'll say, yeah, let me look through this list. These are the trials you'd be eligible for. Terrific. Um, Dr. Leah, you know, we have a, a, a big research project at Cancer Support Community called our Cancer Experience Registry, and it's really a survey, yeah. a study of patients on an ongoing basis. And um, we're, we're putting out a report right now on ovarian cancer. One thing that we learned is a significant percentage of, of patients are concerned um, about their cancer progressing, their cancer coming back. They're worried about the future. I know that sometimes we, we see in ovarian cancer, the treatment works for a while, it stops working, we move the patient to the next option in this sort of sequential way. But can yeah. you talk a little bit about some of these concerns? I think these are very valid concerns, and I have patients who are newly diagnosed who have this concern. I have patients who are 12 years out who have this concern, right? I think it's because of the way cancer and this fear of cancer recurrence is such an important like element of like what cancer patients have to learn how to cope with. And I think everyone learns and develops like different coping mechanisms for that type of uncertainty, if that makes sense. And so I think Mm -hmm. that those are very natural, you know, tendencies. And some people kind of have their own, like, sort of innate coping mechanisms. And then our job is to kind of say, like, how do I build that resilience for my patient, right? Like, what type of support am I giving that person that's just outside of, like, the time that they spend with me, which is very fairly limited compared to, like, the rest of their life, right? Um, So I think it's really about kind of like centering, saying like, yes, there's this cancer diagnosis and yes, we're moving forward, but how do you kind of equally, like what are your support systems for dealing with, um, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these other things that are happening? Yeah, yeah, good. I think good advice. Good advice. Um, and and uh, you know, we'll mention that cancer support community. We help folks a lot also with those concerns about you yeah. know coping, learning coping skills, and learning you know mm-hmm. learning skills about managing those fears and um, um, anxieties. As we wrap up, um, Dr. Lee, what are you excited about? What's uh, what's on the horizon? Uh, t- t- any any reports on where we are on a screening and detection test? Other treatment advances yeah, on the horizon I mean, we should be excited about. 
I mean, I will say there are a lot of advances. There's so many. I mean, I think there's just more attention being paid to the GYN cancers in general and ovarian cancers, especially in the sort of the precision medicine side of like really fine-tuning like which um, drugs are going to be most effective for patients. I would say, I mean, I'm, you know, I... In my work, sort of, you know, I do have a focus on survivorship and sort of a patient-centered exposure, you know, in our cancer center. I really think one of the things that I'm really excited about is how much more we have learned on how to integrate, like, patient's experience, right? Like, so really, like, excited about patient-reported outcomes in trials, like, making sure we're, like, paying attention to, like, where you know, those elements of, like, really linking kind of these advances in science to, like, how our patients are feeling about it. I, I think that's going to end up with, like, much more improvement. So that includes things like we're really excited about novel drugs, but equally we should be pairing this with the question you asked. How much How much is this going to cost, right? <laughs> like, what am I going to have to, you know, yeah. can I afford it? Or And so I think that that, ironically, it's more like I'm excited about kind of both of those worlds blending, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, and being absolutely. more proactive absolutely. about that. Yeah, and I think those, you know, the issues that you continue to raise, which I really appreciate so much about patient quality of life and that idea of shared decision-making and patients being educated and empowered and really making these decisions and choices um, in partnership with their um, with their doctor and their medical team. Just a quick last yeah. question, uh, Dr. Lee. Um, just a final word of advice you have if someone's just newly diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So I think the issue is that, you know, for in terms of like a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer, I really would say think about how you're going to kind of feel about setting up your team. So I think it's a team approach, right? So you want to know who's your GYN oncologist or perhaps maybe your medical oncologist and GYN oncologist. Your GYN oncologist would be the surgeon, but if you're in a place where there's not going to be a GYN oncologist as a surgeon, like what's the team, right? So who are you going to be sort of your caregivers? Who's going to be the person who can listen in on conversations? who's going to be the person who may provide you with some social support or reaching out for like a local cancer or like you said, you know, like all of the stuff that cancer support community can do, trying to kind of set up those different elements of what you need to do um, will help you in the long run, right? So like making sure you have all of those kinds of things and letting people know what you need is part part of it. And then just kind of really continuing to sort of develop your own system of organization. So some patients of mine have like binders that they carry or some patients of mine follow along in my chart. And so figuring out what's right for you. Some patients of mine don't even want to know their CO125 and they want their sister to handle it all. You know, so like figuring out what your system is going to be may be very important so that you know going forward um, how to do it. Excellent. Great advice. Great conversation, Dr. Lee. I really appreciate your time and wisdom and expertise and and insights for our listeners. Um, I want to thank our listeners for joining us today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I just want to remind folks of many of the great resources we do have at the cancer support uh, community. We provide a multitude of in-person, online, telephonic support. If you want to grab a pen, uh, the website is www.cancersupportcommunity.org, or you can call our helpline at 888-793-9355 and speak to one of our navigators who can help to navigate and, and, and questions about second opinion. We provide emotional support, information on nutrition, exercise, stress reduction uh, for people with all cancers at any stage, stage of disease, including, of course, uh, ovarian cancer. We also support the caregivers, family members, and loved ones of those with cancer. So I thank folks for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Lee, uh, for being with us. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebow. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. 
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support 